Well, Merry Christmas. That was weak, but I'll take it. <laughs> uh, my name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church. If you would open up your Bibles to the book of Luke, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So if you open up there, I'd like to start off with a question. Might be a little sensitive. Have you, have you ever felt like the government is overreaching in your life? <laughs> Too soon? <laughs> Yeah, I, I had a hunch that might strike a nerve. Come with me to the days of Jesus' birth to illustrate uh, government overreach. King Herod rules all over the land of Israel under the authority of Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor. And Herod was terrified that one day a Jewish prophecy that the Messiah uh, would be born and that he would actually take over Israel, not just Israel, but the entire world. This fear was exasperated when three wise men or magi or a bunch of wise men, I actually don't know how many technically, uh, showed up and they were looking for the king of the Jews, the Messiah, and his response was fear. He tricked them, lied to them, and ultimately his response was to kill Every single baby born in Bethlehem and in the region surrounding two years old and under. Can you say government overreach? Can you say injustice? Can you say utter anger, irritation, frustration? It's no wonder that the Jewish leaders described him like this. One who would be prepared to commit any crime in order to gratify his unbounded ambition. And this is the political climate that Joseph and Mary and Jesus are going to find themselves in. Now I want to fast forward actually a few centuries, still the first, or a few decades, still the first century. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes in the book of Romans chapter 13. He's writing this about a Christian's response living under the Roman rule of authority. And by the way, from Jesus' birth all the way up to the time when the book of Romans was written, things did not get better. In fact, they got worse. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, can you, be, can you imagine being forced to obey the government with no representation, with no judicial structure for recourse when government overreaches, no opportunity to vote out politicians in a certain period of time when they do inappropriate things. I mean, this is the context, the political climate that Jesus and Mary and Joseph and all the first century Christians find themselves in. And they are trying to figure out what does it mean to give my first and total allegiance to Jesus and live under the human authority of the Roman government that God has somehow allowed to be here and do this in a way that brings God glory. And even in this day, we are struggling to figure out this tension, are we not? We're trying to figure out what do I do with my business? What do I do with my, 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 my time? What do I do with mass? What do I do with all of these things? What do I do with their approach to church? And, and people are frustrated at the government and with each other. And I think this is a great time to set some context for Luke chapter 2 by, by establishing a simple theology of government. So if you take notes, this will be a great opportunity uh, to write some basic things down. This is something that all Christians everywhere, we have to be kind of on the same page with these things. Five things. Number one, 
Why did God even make government? What's going on? Government restrains our sinful impulses. You might be tempted at times to say, I just wish there was no government. I wish I could just rule myself. I should go back to the, the book of Genesis and Sodom and Gomorrah. You actually get a picture of what happens when government is removed from the equation and there is no justice. Uh, here's what we actually find, that God saw it fit that there would be less evil and immorality in the world with government than without it. Go figure that one out. Here's the second one. Government protects its citizens from evil and invaders. Romans chapter 13, verse 4, Paul goes on. He says this, for government is God's servant for your good. It doesn't always feel like that, but that's the reason God has established government. You just got to remember, without it, however bad it is, it would likely be worse. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he, government, is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Here's the third category. Government is inherently broken because the people running it are inherently broken. Those who find their identity in politics, who, are, who, who believe if, if only this candidate would win the election, everything would be better. What we fail to realize is that every single level of government we're, broken with, we're dealing with broken humans with broken motives who don't have a total God global perspective of everything, trying to do many of them the best they can. But when you put all of your hope and all of your identity in politics, it will utterly and completely fail you eventually. Number four, every government is allowed, ordained, or permitted by God, every one of them, but also removed for, by God for larger purposes. Isn't this a crazy thought? Think about every government that has ever existed, that exists currently, or that will exist, and it exists by the sovereign, providential, ordaining hand of God. Somehow God thought that this world of government is better than no government at all. Listen to Acts chapter 17. Verse 26, he says, He, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places, particularly speaking of governments and the boundaries that they have. That, why, here's the larger reason. Why did God do this rather than just leaving the entire world in its sinful state to all fend for themselves and fight for themselves? Here's why God did this. God felt that this approach would be the best for people to come to know him. Why did he do this? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Lastly, number five, only King Jesus can lead a worldwide government and righteousness and eradicate injustice permanently. Only him. So we live in this tension between the reality of the world's governments right now, the reality of the government we live under currently, and the waiting period for Jesus to come and establish, yes, a one world government where he reigns in righteousness and eradicates injustice at every single corner of our globe permanently and forever. Give me that day now. When we say, come Lord Jesus, this is what we're asking him to do. We're asking him to come, eradicate evil, judge the world, and usher in a time when you are reigning forever and ever in justice and peace. Okay, so how do I respond to the government? Whenever you think about a theology of government, it has to be very practical and here's a quick summary of how the Bible speaks 
about a Christian's attitude or view towards the government. Number one, we respect and honor our government leaders. That's a hard one sometimes. Somehow, we have to be irritated and frustrated at immorality and injustice and figure out a posture of respect. Number two, we have to be subject to and obey its laws. Now, every single practical response to government has to hold in tension this reality. My first loyalty and obedience is to Jesus Christ and the word of God, the living word and the written word. My first authority is that and if any local, state, federal, or national government, etc., asks me or demands of me that I violate any of those, I will rebel against the government so that I can keep my first priority submission to God and to his word. Here's the third response that we have, which is to pray for our civil leaders. And apparently when the Apostle Paul tells us to do this, this isn't some thing that we just do because they're empty words like rote prayers. In fact, Apparently, that the people of God are supposed to be on their knees praying for their government leaders, even the ones they like the least. And apparently for Paul, he believes that this has a powerful, practical impact, bottom line, in terms of the church's relationship with the government. And then number four, I know this is your favorite. You live in Illinois, most of you, you get to pay taxes. Can I get a praise God from that one? No, not at all. All right, Luke chapter two, verse one. I think we've set some context. Luke is written, well, by Luke, Luke is a doctor, he's an historian, and after the crucifixion and resurrection, Luke set out to build an eyewitness account of the events of the life of Jesus, which is documented in the book of Luke, as well as the events of the birth and the expansion of the church after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, which is the book of Acts. In fact, no New Testament author has written more words in the New Testament than Luke. Paul wins by books. Luke wins by sheer quantity of words between the book of Luke and the book of Acts. It is almost certain that Luke sat down with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and he interviewed her. And what you're about to read probably came from this interview with her and a handful of other people. Luke consolidated, consolidated them together so that for now millennia, we have the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. And we're jumping right into a political context that's very important for us to get our head around. In Luke chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, In those days, we're talking about right before the birth of Jesus, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, that all the world, all the world should be registered. And you might ask, who is this Caesar Augustus? What is his hubris that he believes he can actually demand the entire world to be registered? Well, he is the Roman emperor, which really governed almost all of the known world at the time. And so in verse 2, it says this. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. This is also known as a census now, we have an American notion of census, so let's refresh. Why do we have a census in America? Here are a couple main reasons. Number one, for accurate representation. That's important. Number two, for accurate taxation, for building infrastructure. That's important. Accurate information for business development. So if you want to go start a business in a city, you can get the best information. Demographic information, it helps businesses start and flourish. That's, that's good. Fair distribution of government funds. I don't know if you know this, but about $675 billion a year are allocated by the federal government to be spent on schools and hospitals and roads and public works and multiple other programs. So if you want your city to get more government funding in America, then you go register because the more people you have, then the more money you get. And then 
I know this is one that you love, war funding, right? Someone's got to pay for war and defense, and all of this comes out of taxes. Now, let's talk about the census in Rome. Why did they have a census? Well, number one, taxation for building infrastructure. This was an enormous empire, expanding roads needed to be built. Many of the territories they had taken over were very underdeveloped. And so as the empire grew, if you wanted ease of transportation, even just building roads from one city to another connected the entire empire to itself. That was very important. The assessment of power, this was very co common for kings of old to really see how big is my kingdom. And then we get to assess how many bodies, able bodies, do I have for war. It really gave you the ability to figure out where are my able bodies for war? What region of my empire are they in? Where do I have the strongest front? Where do I need to move people toward? And then finally, um, taxes were required from this uh, so that when you went to your home, they could tax you appropriately and someone had to fund the Roman war machine that was always trying to overtake more and more and more and more. So it's in this context, honestly, of injustice, of murder, of government overreach, where Jesus says something very, very, very frustrating to his conservative base. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus says this. Uh, the Pharisees actually start, and they said to Jesus, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He is unjust. He is immoral. He is taking over the world. They are killing people. They're oppressing Christians and the people of God and Jews. And so they brought him a denarius, and on the denarius it had a picture of Caesar. Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. In other words, if Caesar wants his money back, give him his money back. What does God want first and foremost from you? The very thing that bears his image which is you. And so what God wants, what God is concerned with more than how much the government taxes you is your heart devoted to God that you would give your entire life to faith in Christ and to the worship of the one true God. That's his greatest concern for you. Now back to verse three in Luke chapter two. All went to be registered. Why did all go? You have no choice. You can't say no. If you do say no, you will probably be in jail or killed. Why this way? Why does everybody have to leave where they're living and go to the very place where they were born? That's how they did it in the Roman census. To reduce fraud. That's actually pretty simple. Because if you go to the place you're living and it's not the place where you're born or you were raised, you can totally declare, oh yeah, I'm a Roman citizen. And you can lie through your teeth and nobody would know. They would actually make you go back to your hometown because A, they knew you, and B, that's where your records, records were. It reduced fraud significantly. And so they made everybody kind of pause their entire life and then go back to the place of their birth. Now imagine all the debates on this policy. Imagine people sitting on one side. And on one side you have this, those who support big government. And they're like, there is a real threat from the barbarians. Tribal warfare is all around us. The fringes of our empire are being taxed regularly. 
They're going to pillage. They're going to kill. They're going to murder our people. They're going to take our stuff. If we don't stop them and build an enormous war machine, we're going to lose everything. We need to tax, tax, tax. We need more warriors, more soldiers. We need to send them out to the fringes. We need to defend the empire. Big government, big army, go, go, go. And here's the irony. One of the major factors of the fall of the Roman Empire were these tribes, tribal warfare on the fringes of the empire that moved their way in and ended up crippling the empire. On the other side, there's those who value personal freedom. Rome should decentralize. It's way too big. You can't control an empire that is this large. Let the local areas protect themselves. If you uh, enact this census, you're going to turn the world upside down. You're going to inconvenience people's lives. And so here's just a little glimpse into the impact of everyday life. You force people to temporarily move, force people to stop work and life as usual, force some without savings to go into debt. You force people to travel dangerous Roman roads. You force people to leave their homes unguarded. Now, in our preaching prep team, uh, this past Sunday, it was Pastor Craig Jarvis from Village Church East. It was Pastor Mike Boyle, our interim associate pastor, and myself. And so we all found the place that we were born, and we opened up our Google Maps, and we tried to figure out how long would it take us to walk from our homes to the place of our birth. I was born in Lansing, Michigan, 242 miles. We generously said at 15 miles per day walking, that's a lot, no breaks, 16 days, one way, that's just for me to get back to the place of my birth. Mike Boyle lived even, or was born even further away, Washington, D.C., 710 miles from his home, 235 hours of walking, 48 days at 15 miles per day without a break. Craig Jarvis kicked all of our rears. He is from Halifax, Nova Scotia, 1,526 miles away, that's where he was born, 489 hours, 102 days at 15 miles per day. That's just one way, three and a half months, just to get back to the place of his birth. Uh, Mary and Joseph did not have it that bad. Uh, from Nazareth to Bethlehem, it's about 97 miles. It's six days of walking. But here's what I want you to remember. Mary is very pregnant. Ladies, those of you who've had a baby, anybody interested in walking 97 miles on a dime without preparation, no, nobody, right? You can imagine. Do you think she, you think she was grumbling a little bit? I was like, oh, Caesar, Augustus, right? I should not know what I'm going through. I gotta go home. Joseph's like, I don't know. My wife's all irritable. And I can just imagine. So let's step back for a moment. While the people bicker and grumble and they argue, while everyone is inconvenienced, the economy is disrupted, lives are flipped upside down, can we just agree None of this is a surprise to God, and he is at work. Managing history and emperors and angels and more to bring about his purposes. So somehow this selfish, narcissistic, warmongering decree that was somehow a means to fulfill an Old Testament prophecy of God. Listen to the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. There's a prophecy about where the Messiah must be born. He says this, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, sorry, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. The Messiah must 
be born in Bethlehem. This is a prophetic promise. My question, when did this hit Mary? Like you're pregnant. Clearly she wasn't planning on making the trip back to Bethlehem. Like if she hears the decree and she's like, oh no, we gotta go back to Bethlehem. I wonder at what point did it hit her that there is a prophecy from the book of Micah, chapter five, verse two. Now they didn't have chapters and verses like we do now, but the book of Micah, chapter five, verse two, like when did it hit her that the baby she was bearing in her womb was required by prophetic decree to be born in Bethlehem? I wonder if, by the way, as she is grumbling, I'm surmising a little bit here, as she is frustrated, as she is irritated, I wonder if on the way home it just hit her. This is what it took for God to get me here. I, I am actually, uh, though oppressed by this governmental decree, I am actually on my way to fulfill a centuries-old prophecy of God so that the entire world may, may know that this is not some random baby being born, but this is the promised Messiah who would fulfill prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. Now in verse four, Luke is gonna give us the theological and prophetic significance of this town, Bethlehem. Here's what he says. Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David. So in Jewish, in Jewish theology, the Messiah is the second King David, and the Messiah is the final king of Israel. So the Messiah is going to come from the clan of King David. He's going to be born where King David was born. He is going to be a direct descendant in the bloodline of King David. He's, he's the heir, the only rightful heir to the throne of King David. He's going to be the fulfillment of all of the prophecies that surrounded David and looked forward to this future Messiah. And so what Luke is doing in this one short little sentence is showing his Jewish readers that this baby is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies. He is the second David, the final king of Israel, the fulfillment of all of this. And we get to verse five, and, and verse five feels like a gloss over verse, by the way. If you're looking at your Bibles and you read verse five, this is the one where you're just like, yeah, 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 got it. But here's what happens in verse five. He says this, they all left to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So we've set the context that this is the ancient of days, the Messiah who is from old, we set the context that he is from the lineage of David. He's the rightful heir to the throne. And yet here's what we have. We have a betrothed woman who is pregnant. By the way, should a betrothed woman in this context ever be pregnant? This is an embarrassment. This is immorality. The only other explanation is that there was a miraculous intervention by God. You have one of two options here, immorality or miracle. And this is what Mary has testified her entire life. This was no immorality. And this is this moment where you stop and Luke is reminding all of the Jewish readers of the context here. This isn't just some random baby. This is a betrothed woman who is given a baby by God in her belly, though she still be a virgin. Verse six carries on. While they were there, the time came for them to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So what? Number one, never underestimate an inconvenient and illogical government regulation 
to accomplish the plans of God. I don't know what governments are up to, but I know none of it has slipped by God. I do know that no matter what a local, state, or federal governmental leader decides, implements, or makes law, I do know this, that there is never a moment where somebody does something and God says, all my plans are done. I've got nothing I can't, I cannot outmaneuver J.B. Pritzker. Can't do it. Can't figure it out. Man, that guy got me, that billionaire. How did he do it? There's never a moment where there's a law or regulation that trumps the plan of God. In fact, what we learn from Scripture is that God actually is in control of the king's hearts, and he uses them in whatever ways he wants. And then what we're going to find is that as we look back with God's lens, with God's values, with God's eyes, and we see throughout the panorama of history, what we see is the orchestration of a providential and sovereign hand of God to fulfill the purposes of God. Okay, so are some of you upset that you cannot see your family? Probably. Are some of you upset that some people will not wear a mask? Probably. Are some of you upset that you have to wear a mask? Probably. Are some of you upset because there are some local governments shutting down businesses? Probably. Here's God's response. Church, I've got this. I'm up to something. I've got this. I am up to something. Now, does this mean you sit back and blindly comply and do nothing? No. Not at all. In fact, you live in a governmental system that gives you a voice, gives you representative government, gives you options. But even though you use those options ethically, legally, theologically, accurately, it does not mean that we lose hope or confidence that our God has got this. He is in control. And I want you to hear me, whether you be in heaven dead, looking back through the scope and panorama of history, or whether or not you have the privilege to look back on this season with clear eyes, you will see, if you look at it from God's lens, you will see a plan plan of God in action for the salvation and the redemption of many. What irritates you is a mask, and it should irritate you. What should irritate you is a policy of overreach. It should. What should irritate you uh, for people not uh, loving and caring for each other? It should irritate you. I don't care what side of the equation or perspective you're on. You probably should be irritated because everything is irritating. We do not lose hope and confidence in our God that he is up to something. He is doing something. He is moving. He is saving people. He is redeeming people. And what we learn by looking at Mary and Joseph is that in their irritation, probably frustration, God was up to something. And it just took a little bit of time for, they get, for them to get on the other side of this. They were to look back and be like, oh, God is so smart. There was never a moment when our God did not know what he was doing. Let me just say it again. Never underestimate an inconvenient or illogical government regulation to accomplish the plans of God. Thank God you actually have a voice. Because Mary and Joseph did not. So our last two, so what's, what they do is they bring communion and Christmas together. Communion and Christmas are both about looking forward. Here's our second, so what? Our king came once in fulfillment of prophecy and he will come again. I'm gonna go back to Micah chapter five. In verse two he says, but O you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, 
who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. But verse four goes on, and here's what we learn, that there is a first coming where Jesus, where the Messiah would pay for sins, and there's a second coming where he would usher in uh, through judgment and his reign and power, global dominion and a global government that he reigns and rules over the entire earth. Now we get to this part. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord is God and they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he, this Messiah, shall be their peace. Isaiah, another prophet, 700 years before the Messiah was even born, chapter nine, verse six says this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And as he leads and as he governs over the entire globe, here's what it says, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Communion and Christmas are also about looking inward, and here's the third, so what? Give to God what is God's. Have you given your life to Jesus? I wanna just start there. Christmas is actually a time when people come back to church or they watch online and maybe they haven't come in a while, maybe they're curious, maybe all of this context has made you start to reevaluate your spiritual life. Maybe a friend or a family member, your parent or grandparents have dragged you to church and, and you don't want to be here, I don't know. But I do know this, that Christmas is a time of reevaluation. And it's a time I wanna just ask you the question, have you given your life to Jesus Christ? Have you made a personal decision to trust in Jesus as your God, as your savior? Do you believe that you're a sinner who's fallen short of God's standards? Do you believe Jesus is God and that he died on the cross for your sins? Do you believe he was raised from the dead? I just have incredible news for you. I think there's this, this terrible misunderstanding all across America and the entire globe which says good people go to heaven if you just accrue enough good works. And I cannot tell you how many people come through our doors and they are living under the pressure of the accrual of good works in order to earn God's favor and you just cannot find that narrative in the Bible. The Bible has incredible news, and the incredible news is that you're not good enough and you never can be good enough and you can never earn your way to heaven. But the good news is that Jesus offers salvation and forgiveness for anybody who places their faith in Christ. And today, I don't know if you've placed your faith in Jesus. I don't know if you've just assumed you're going to heaven because you're better than most people. I don't know if you assumed you're going to heaven because your parents are Christians and, and maybe you think you inherit their faith. Every generation has to, has to own a personal relationship with God through faith in Christ individually. And so I just wanna come back again. Have you personally trusted in Jesus Christ? Now, believers... Communion and Christmas are about looking inward, and I want to ask you a question. In the spirit of giving to God, what is God's? What sin has Jesus covered that you are currently indulging? There's nothing like a pandemic and Christmas and family being together to revert back to old ways and patterns and habits. So, follower of Christ, what we want for you this Christmas is for you to recommit your life back to God, every part of it. So what is that part of your life where the blood of Christ has covered it, but you have struggled once again with it? 
you have it in your brain? And what I wanna challenge you in this time is to give this back to the Lord. Uh, the gospel proclaims to you that you'll be a sinner till the day you die, but the blood of Christ covers you if you've placed your faith in Christ. The gospel reminds us that you have the Holy Spirit when you trust in Christ, you have a helper, you have an encourager, you have an equipper who wants to come alongside of you and help you put aside the sin that right now is so easily entangling you. So we're gonna do in a moment is we're gonna have some time of silence and this is an opportunity if you've never trusted in Christ. If you are ready to place your faith in Jesus, use this, use this time to just talk to him, confess your sin to him and ask him to save you. If you've already trusted in Christ, it's an opportunity for you to confess again and recommit your life and, and relish in the forgiveness that is offered to you through the blood of Christ and the help that the Holy Spirit has given you by his presence inside of you. Now, if you're new with us, uh, right under your seats are um, uh, communion cup and bread. They're on top of each other. In fact, if you just peel the upper layer off, it'll expose a little wafer, and then under that is the juice. There are a couple common questions that people have when we celebrate communion together. One is, I'm new here, what do I do? And if you're new and you've trusted in Christ, despite where you go to church, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, we wanna invite you to partake of communion with us. There are also kids in the room. Mom and dad, this is completely up to you whether or not kids partake of communion with us. Our ask is this, that if your kids have trusted in Jesus, then our ask is that you let them do it if you're comfortable. But if they have not trusted in Jesus, then our ask is that you not have your kids participate in communion. Some of you are here and you do not believe in Jesus and you're not sure what to do. You don't wanna be weird or make anybody feel awkward. If you've never trusted in Jesus, we ask simply that you not partake because to partake is to declare that you have trusted in Christ. Nobody will judge you or look down on you in any way. So we're gonna have a time of silence, a time of reflection for you to talk to God. Uh, what we're gonna do is uh, at the end of that silence, I'm going to read some scripture and then we're gonna partake together as a symbol of our unity in Jesus. Let's have a time of silence before the Lord. <laughs> 